0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I was invited here to speak about the Founding Fathers and the family. Now, I did not actually come up with that title. Uh, The kind lady who invited me here did, (laughs) after some email back and forth between us. And I said, well, that's okay, I'll talk about that, because it interests me too. And I started looking around for our founders' views on the family, and the first book, the first book I reached for. Sub subtext, flagrant self promotion again. Is a book called Canada's Founding Debates, of which I was the manag- managing editor in the year 2000. I think it came out in 2000. If you haven't seen it, if you don't have it, I urge you to get it and put it in your family library. It's not, it's not like an exciting read, like a you know, bedtime book? It's a, research, it's a reference book, really, but it's a book I put together with four uh, constitutional and uh, scholars and historians because I felt it was time that Canada came to terms with its own founding debates. And everywhere I went, I couldn't find them. I went to the bookstore. I said, look, I see the Federalist Papers here, which is the wonderful compilation of the American founding debates where are the Canadian founding debates? And the bookstore owner would go, huh? <laughs> or something like that. And then I would go to the library and I'd look for Canada's founding debates or some such title, anything. Couldn't find anything. And then I did find some small publications which had excerpts from the Quebec portion, probably arguably the most important portion of our debates, but that was all, and they were out of print since 1950. In other words, Canadian citizens who wanted to know about their own founding couldn't do so in any easy way. They'd have to be some kind of very specialized scholar to track down those documents. So I raised $50,000 from the Donner Foundation, and I put the scholar, scholarly team together, and we went after all the micro stuff in every province in this country, and we pulled out all the arguments about Canada's founding uh, from the earliest days, from the uh, you know, 1850 period to post-1867 when many provinces, you know, and thereafter, were arguing about whether they should join Confederation or not. So anyway, that's a promo for that book. I think it's, you cannot be a scholar of Canadian history, Canadian constitutional history, uh, Canadian early law, uh, even Canadian culture, certainly Canadian politics without having that book in your library. So, and I liked it because doing it, because it was a profoundly conservative act, before that time, any student in a Canadian university who was taking a course in Canada's founding just simply had to believe what his, professor told, his or her professor told him. You know? Oh, take notes and so on, run around for various secondary sources, sure, lots of that. But to actually get a real hard look at what the founders themselves were actually saying and arguing? No way. So that meant all the students in the country were, in a sense, I'm not pointing fingers at every professor in the place or some wonderful professors teaching these courses. But it meant that the students were vulnerable and could be subjected to, let's call it, distortions of the truth, of the professor's private take on how Canada became a country and all that. So the book was a profoundly conservative act because it put in the hands of young Canadians the raw material, the real history, and the real speeches. And some of them were beautiful, very moving I won't say you'll, you'll be close to tears, but you might. Especially when you realize that these people stood up and they spoke these words without notes in open assembly. Some beautiful language, profound thinking, and very interesting roots. Back to the family question. I opened the book because I knew there wasn't much on the family and I couldn't find anything. An occasional reference, perhaps, to some founder's family when he was arguing some point, but nothing about what the founders felt about the concept of the family in society. And then I went to some of the American sources, because they were all British colonists at the time, like before the American Revolution, and before our own founding, they were all British colonists. So the question was, what do people who came to North America feel about the family? And I just want to talk a little bit about that. First, I have said, there's hardly any mention. I research the U.S. Constitution, the original British North America Act, and the modern, our own Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which was created in 1982. Uh, A troublemaking document in many respects in my mind, but I'll get to that later. You can't find the word family in any of those documents. Wow. How can it be that all of us whose lives are formed in families who have such passionate feelings, uh, you know, for for our families how can it be that the word is not even mentioned in our founding documents? I think it's, well, it's amazing. How come? Well, I think one of the reasons is that the people who put those early documents in particular together took it for granted. It was a general assumption of all civilized people who articulated these arguments in the Western world and probably every other kind of world too, that the family... um, is a core um, organism, so to speak, a core social structure about which there was not much argument. Of course, it was heterosexual heterosexual union. This idea of homosexual marriage would have absolutely flabbergasted our founders. Um, Probably would have accused us of being a very sick society for even entertaining these kinds of ideas. But the long and short of it is that... As I say, there was hardly any mention of it because it was taken for granted as, a, as the core social reality of all human life. Uh, and I, I think that was also linked to the notion of the Protestant variation of Christianity because the stress in that form of Christian belief was on liberty, uh, right from the Reformation forward. Uh, a famous uh, British historian named Gooch, I forget his first name, wrote a bu- whole book about this, and in it he he said, and I remember this, he said that modern democracy is a child of the Reformation. And what he was getting at was that the Reformation inflamed people with the notion that they could find God personally, uh, that it was a personal search, a uh, personal uh, discovery, and that they needed to be free to do that. So there were all kinds of religious wars, of course, throughout history, especially during and after the Reformation on the European continent and in Britain. And, uh, of course, the Puritan founders fled to the New World to create, you know, the new Jerusalem on our shores, the perfect Christian society. And all that is true, but the, the root of the whole thing was the stress on liberty, you know, you couldn't really find the true faith unless you were free to do so. You couldn't really become a moral human being unless you had freedom of moral conscience to follow your God, follow your biblical uh, direction. Uh, and so this was, became rooted to the notion of what it was to form a free country. I will come back to that. Uh, because in those days, the idea of freedom was not associated with the individual. It was associated with the notion of a grant of freedom to individuals to bind themselves to their societies. It was not related in any way to the notion of individual autonomy. In fact, I would say, you could write an interesting paper on how our modern notion of individual freedom and autonomy might have been conceived in those days. And I would say they might have said that it was a kind of social sickness. This idea that you could get along as a free individual, simply making contracts everywhere you went and didn't need any of the formative um, powers of uh, voluntary associations such as the family, the family being the most important one. So we'll come back to that distinction on liberty too but the long and short of this is that that's why people in those days when the word freedom was raised, the first thing they thought of was chaos and anarchy. Um, if you have a a whole pack of dogs and you tell them they're all free, they're just going to run around, you know, yapping at each other and fighting and going off in different directions. Anybody who's tried to run with a pack of dogs knows you you need the reins, you need the controls, you need the whip too to make them go where you want them to go and so on. But without the tether, without being tied together in any sort of way, they're just all over the place. So in the early days, um, the word liberty, of course, was a powerful word. It had very distinct... And glorious meanings such as uh, not being a slave, not being taxed by a central government, certainly not having an income tax, that was like, like forget it. An income tax was a, a dirty word, unthinkable in the early days of our country. Other kinds of taxes were fair because they had to do with exchange of goods and services between individuals and across borders and all that. But an income tax, I mean a tax on human labor, that was slavery once removed. So when our people talked about liberty, they did talk about it in a glorious way in this context, but not as we think of it today, which is a development that has kind of grown since, um, especially in the English-speaking world, since the work of John Stuart Mill's little book called On Liberty, which I have written about a few times. And if you're interested in where that led in Canada and in, I think, all the uh, uh, democracies that sprang from Britain in particular, but also it has come to infect those in Europe. If you want to see where that went and how it differs from the European type or style of democracy, which came more from, uh, well, the continental tradition under Jean-Jacques Rousseau, if you look at my, ar- my website, you'll see an article called Poetry and the Mystique of the Self in John Stuart Mill, colon, The Roots of Libertarian Socialism. That's a mouthful. But the title says a lot. First of all, that John Stuart Mill started as a rationalist and um, a logical thinker, a rationalist, and eventually had a crisis when he was 22 or 23 that was brought about through his discovery of English poetry, specifically the poetry of William Wordsworth. Uh, I wonder if I could take my coat off. It's a bit bit warm in here. Thank you. So, it's okay, I'll just leave it here. So, the long and short of it is that uh, Mill discovered the poetry of... William Wordsworth, and having grown up as a highly tutored young child, excessively tutored young child under his own father, he was overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the emotions in Wordsworth's poetry, especially initially of his poetry about life as a young boy. And he realized, I never had a childhood, and he wept over this, and he had a crisis over it, but eventually the poetry brought him around to a new and very different conception of liberty, And if you read that article, as I say, you can download it from my website. It's right on the, indicated right on the homepage there. I think it will help you understand um, how we came to our present situation where we live under a regime that I call hyper-democracy. Hyper-democracy is the notion that sovereignty is not with God the way it used to be. It's not with kings the way it was after that. It's not with aristocrats and nobles and all that. And it's not with the people. Sovereignty is resident in the individual today. That's how we think of sovereignty. It's an individual right. People talk, for example, about sovereignty over my own body. That's how feminists argue for the right to abortion, you know. No one talks about the sovereignty of the community anymore or the sovereignty of civil society. When people talk about rights, they're always talking about individual rights. They never say, what about society's rights? What about the nature of our society? Oh, they say, oh, well, society is an abstraction. That's just an intellectual abstraction. Well, in this book, you'll see, I argue, that it's, not a, it's far from an, an abstraction. Society is comprised of all kinds of incredibly crucial relationships which engage real people, and it's no abstraction at all. The family, of course, is the heart of that because I think it's the most important um, human voluntary association. This takes me back to the founder's notion of freedom again because John Locke was also an influence on them and he felt that um, um, government should be by the consent of the governed. That's what actually gave him the foundation for his whole argument against uh, tyranny, that government should be by the consent of the governed and if governments succeed their duties and their obligations to the people, if they become tyrannous, and the people can withdraw their consent and actually revolt against the government. Be that as it may, some of that found its way into the idea of the family in the colonies. This idea that the family was also a contractual unit. It's not an arranged marriage. We don't tell the women who they're going to marry and force them to marry this guy and not that guy. Okay, there may have been some good reasons for that in the past because fathers in hard economic times were extremely concerned about how the guy was going to look after his daughter, when she was having four or five, six, seven, eight babies, who knows? I mean, obviously, she can't go out and make money. You've got to have an income. How are you going to do that? And so the young man would come to see the father, not just to get permission to marry his daughter, that would come last in the conversation. The first part of the discussion was, Sir, I have a good job. Here are my prospects. I have a good inheritance, I make good money, or whatever, and here's how I'm going to look after your daughter, and so on and so on. And finally, at the end, he says, okay, but it's not just because he loves her. That was not the biggest part of the equation. That became so approaching during and after the Romantic Revolution in the late 18th and early 19th century, and it's very much here today because Hollywood says so. (laughs) You know, you got to love love, but I mean, as a sole basis for marriage, I'm not sure it's all that sound, you know. You need something more. And any father, I've got three daughters, I've married them all off, and and uh, all the men came to see me and ask permission. It was really nice, moving moments. And we did discuss these kind of things. At any rate, it was Locke's influence on Western life, which kind of created a sort of um, facsimile of the free society by insisting on the free family, the freely formed voluntary family entered into by voluntary parties that both consented to the Union. Now I'm going to mention a footnote here just because it springs to mind and say that, and I say this on radio or TV when I'm asked, I say that today it's impossible to become legitimately or truly married in Canada anymore any longer. Because no-fault divorce basically made it possible for either one of the parties to walk into the house after meeting an exciting individual or whatever and say to their spouse, I'm out of here. What? Yeah, I'm out of here. Why? I don't want to be married to you anymore. You can't do that. Oh, yes, I can. And so on, and it's over. You know? I mean, it wasn't long ago when you contracted your way in, you had to contract your way out. And part of contracting your way out was, first of all, finding fault. Today is no fault. Divorce has gotten rid of that. And secondly, there would be uh, implications, penalties. If you were the faulty party, like, you know, support penalties or other things that you had to observe to make divorce possible, and it wasn't all that easy and wasn't all that frequent. But when no-fault divorce came along, it basically created a no-responsibility, non-contractual marriage. So it is true both parties signed these papers as if it's some kind of contract, but it's not really a contract in law in the sense that um, you don't need both parties to get out. So I say you can't really get married in Canada today. Not in that sense. Uh, But when Locke was around, it was true. And uh, that's why there's a kind of um, um, metaphorical similarity between the free, voluntary nature of the family and the idea the founders had of what the larger society should be like. And I'm going to get to that too. Uh, If you're interested in the difference between that British view of the family and of society and the European view which you'll find in that article I pointed to you on my website because I talk about Rousseau in there too and the difference between his idea of democracy and our idea. Here's the basic difference. The British view rested on the notion of the consent of the governed. It was about majority rule, that's true, with caveats because one of the things our founders feared very much was raw democracy. Uh, When I get into debates in rooms like this, especially when people get angry with me, which they often do, they'll stand up and say, but that's Canada's a democracy. I demand my democratic right and all that kind of thing. I said, no, no. Canada was never started as a democracy and it was never intended to be a democracy in the pure sense that you are implying. Our founders were frightened of democracy, raw democracy, because, because why? They'd just seen a horrible, fratricidal civil war in the American Republic, which rested on the notion of democracy and they just in living memory was the absolute disaster of the slaughters of the French Revolution, which was the most um, Ideological democracy the world had ever seen to that point. So our founders were very leery of democracy. So they said, okay We don't want to push the people around we believe in consent of the governed, but we're going to qualify it We're going to give them representatives. We don't want them to vote directly on the laws We don't want you and you and you making laws we want you to vote for somebody who's smart enough to make the laws on your behalf. And then we're going to put a Senate over top of these people full of wise, informed, aristocratic individuals who own a lot of land and things like that. In other words, who have a stake in the country. They're not just passing through on the way to Louisiana. You know what I mean? So we're going to have them oversee the laws and they can send them back for refurbishment, polishing, changing, if they want to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And no, you're not going to elect your judges because... Um, you start electing judges and pretty soon you're going to have Democratic judges, Republican judges, conservative, liberal, whatever. And you're going to have party factions in the courts. And that was the thinking of our fathers at the time about democracy. That's a little segue onto that, but hold it in mind because it relates to these family notions. So consent of the government was the English way and it tied into the English notion of liberty which I've already uh, discussed. What was the European view? It wasn't consent of the governed. Excuse my language, but to hell with the consent of the governed was the attitude. It was the will of the people. You know, Rousseau's notion was la volonté générale. And the notion was that all individuals in the country shall be, their wills, their individual wills shall be fused into a single will. And that single will he called the general will. How will that general will be decided? Well, by the brightest and best. By what he called the legislator. Plural. Legislator. So at the top is always one man, some kind of dictator or um, ruler. So the European notion of democracy was very different from the British notion. And, and uh, that's, that's a passing uh, thing to keep in mind. Uh, back to the British notion of the family. What is the family then? It's a small, free and private society within a free nation under limited government. You see, one is going to reflect the other here. It's a contractual unit under a contract-based form of government. You know, consent of the governed. So that's your picture of the founder's view of uh, the family in Canada at our origins. Now, I want to come back to their biggest fear, which was, if you're all just a bunch of free people running around, how do you get virtue? How do you get public virtue? How do you get concern for the public good? And this is where the role of the family played a huge part for our founders. What they argued was that the private family was a nursery of public virtue. Uh, Individuals do not enter families or enter society fully formed. They are created in society. And at the heart of society, where they, are created, where they are created first is in the private family. Again, that's why you have no mention of the family in any of these documents, because it was considered a private organization, untouched by government. There were no pensions. There was no child welfare. You know, there was no Social Security. There was no Medicare. Think of what's happened. Think of the intrusions of the state into the world of the family in our lives. All those things, which I just mentioned, and more. are are true today. The tentacles of statism entering into the private life of the family is like it's everywhere. But not then. The private family was considered a nursery of public virtue and you can see the equation. Without some kind of nursery of public virtue, uh, there will be no common good possible and therefore no republic in the case of the American terminology. uh, No... Uh, society rooted in liberty. Because if it's only liberty, you got trouble. Now, here's a phrase <clears throat> which drives that home um, more than anything to me. Next weekend, actually a week today, I'm going to be speaking to the uh, uh, National Convention, of the, well, the Provincial Convention of the Ontario Libertarian Party. It's going to be really interesting because I kind of started as a libertarian myself, at least in economic things but I soon began to see the problems with it. And I write about that in this book too. There's a little section on all the political parties, what they were and what they are now. And there's a bit of a section on the libertarian philosophy. Now here's a party which, it's the only one really which actually uses the word freedom, uses the word liberty. When's the last time you heard uh, the Canadian Liberal Party or Conservative Party or any of these people talk about the importance of freedom or liberty in any of the senses that I'm just talking about. They don't. They talk about equality, but they won't talk about liberty. They won't talk about freedom. I told my kids from the start, listen, it's like a teeter-totter. You know, you have more of one, you have less of the other. It's simple, you know. Like as freedom goes up, this equality, I mean talking about forced equality. I'm not talking about equality before the law, which the British-based peoples have always believed in. I'm talking about this modern sense that equality is making everyone the same in substance, giving them all the same things via government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And one goes up, the other goes down, so. But at any rate, um, for our founders, the, the concern was if we actually have a free family origin of origin and we build from that a free society with limited government in the ways that I have suggested to you, and there are more, and they were written out in our BNA Act, um, then how do we get public virtue? If everyone's just doing what they want, like, how, how can that happen? So the solution was the family. And of course, behind the family was religion. I mean, behind all morality is religion of one kind or another. In this case, it's the Christian religion. God bless. And, um, and uh, for our founders, that was very much the case. The Christian religion was the root of um, truth and morality uh, sprang from those tenets. Segway again. Footnote: A few years ago, a very good friend of mine out in Vancouver told me that he and his family had just gone to a fabulous human potential seminar, you know, for the weekend. Fabulous, he said. I said, like what? Oh, he said, it was unbelievable. He said, I said, what, what, what did you get out of it? He was just so excited, and he said, well, he said, by the end of this human potential, all these seminars we had, you know, mom, dad, the kids, everybody, it was just great. At the end, they asked us to sit down and draw out our kind of rules for our behavior as a family, you know, like how we were going to act and behave as a family. And we, we just, we wrote it all out, and we, we put it up in the fridge, and I hadn't seen it yet. But I just looked at him, I said, I said, I said, what's wrong with the Ten Commandments, you know? And you should have seen him, like he was just like a shock, like his, his, his jaw dropped, there was actually a little bit of spittle joining the two lips, which I happened to notice because he would look so shocked, I just... But um, he never thought of that, see? Now, there's a man who lost his roots, see? He turned his back on them, so he thought he had to reinvent them. Okay, what our founders were worried about was everybody trying to invent their own values. So they knew that if religion was strong, this wouldn't be necessary, but it had to be inculcated in the private family, and out of that, you would get responsible, uh, morally grounded individuals who would then uh, see the common good as something higher than themselves. Now, it is this, I think, that we've lost in society today. I'm afraid. Not with everybody, of course. Far from it. Lots of wonderful people do not think of themselves first all the time. Sometimes you have to do that when it's necessary. But for the most part, you know, the common good should uh, precede your own interests. And um, we have some organizations that uh, still have that motto. I think... um, What am I thinking of? Is it Kiwanis Club or... Some of these organizations, they have a motto like that. Uh, I can't think of it now, but I know it's true. (laughs) Yeah, they have some kind of motto like um, Others Before Self, that kind of motto, you know, like Rotary. What's the motto? Yeah, but it says that, doesn't it? It basically says... Hmm? Okay, but the main motto, I think, uh, I don't know if it's changed, but when I was looking at it, it was about the fact that, you know, everybody else before me was the thinking. And our founders felt that you can't get that out of uh, random individuals running around, satisfying their own self-interest. You just can't. Now, I, I, I was segueing over to a, a quote I wanted to give you, which I think you should make note of if you can. It, to me, it was just a stunning insight to the nature of liberty which I, it's a word that thrills me, liberty, you know, but Edmund Burke, who has to be one of the greatest political writers ever, here's what he said. He said, liberty, when men act in groups, is power. And I'm going to cite that next weekend to the libertarian folks who are going to have all kinds of fun debating with me on the nature of liberty and the importance of and so on because I will say, here's the problem with liberty. And Burke was right. When men act in groups, which they usually do, It's power. So then the next thing you have to ask yourself when someone says they want more liberty is, what are you going to do with it? Like, you know, what for? Like, how is it going to be used? And some observers have said, well, uh, liberty is like fire, you know. It can cook your food or it can burn you to death. I mean, if it's not handled right. And liberty is the same way. It has to be handled right. And our founders were very aware of that, as I have indicated. So the Christian ethos in society, um, freely assumed through the moral consciences of free individuals raised in the nursery of the family as the school of morality and public virtue. And the connection with that to the nation is the following. I already mentioned the consent of the governed and the will of the people difference. Our side of the ocean, the British side of the equation, always insisted on the consent of the governed, but they were very worried about tyranny about uh, excessive government. They didn't mind strong government. There's a difference between a strong government and a big government, a huge government. And I indicate that in this book a lot by showing you what's happened to Canada. Throughout, from Confederation forward, there are charts showing you. You can see it. There's like a hundred years of flat line. Zero debt, you know, except blip for the First World War, blip for the Second World War. But it's all a flat line. And along comes Pierre Trudeau, zzz, starts going up like this until 1993 when, when you know, it was just enormous uh, government spending uh, and, of course, debt. And then it came down a bit from 93 until recently with the stimulus spending and now it's headed up again. So we basically have the same or slightly more federal debt uh, now as we had in 1990. It's become a kind of a structural reality of Canadian life And the thing that bothers me most about it comes from the moral perspective, which is, I think that, I don't know how much, you can't find out, but I think an awful lot of that debt uh, has been raised to pay for current consumption. And I think it's simply immoral to be forcing generations of young Canadians who are not here to defend themselves against our appetites to pay for those things. It's plainly wrong and it's a bad country that does that. It's not bad to have some debt, but you should be pretty sure you're going to pay it off. You've got a reason for it. You can convince the people that it's necessary, borrow the money, build your bridges, roads, fight your war, whatever, but then you've got to devote yourself to paying that thing off. You know, It is simply immoral for any country to carry a long-term structural debt, and we're seeing now the results of that in socialist Europe. By the way, I mean, you know, Greece and Spain and Ireland and so many other countries. And look at the USA, right, right south of us. Whoever thought that America would be following... By the way, some of their debt-to-GDP ratios are still not as bad as ours was in the uh, mid-90s and late-90s. But they're getting there, and they're going to be there. And whoever thought we'd see America going in this direction? I mean, that's, that's why this election in a couple of nights is going to be so interesting. And that's why the Tea Party... The Tea Party folks are arguing some of the things that our founders were arguing at the origin of this country, wanting these kinds of liberties, wanting the state to back off. You know? It's a tough one, because if you go to a Canadian public and you say, uh, do you want uh, more taxes or less taxes? They all say, less, less, less taxes. But then if you ask them about cutting certain government services, oh no, don't do that. You know, don't do that. That would be horrible. So they don't see the connection between the things they're unprepared to give up and money they're unprepared to pay. So, one of the results is we live in a policing society. We have pay police. We have uh, affirmative action police. um, All kinds of police in this country, poking into our lives and regulating what used to be considered private rights and and, um, situations. We even have swan police. (laughs) Let me tell you about that. My wife and I have a farm. We have a couple of swans on the farm. And, um, well, we had. Uh, They met their fate at the hands of a pack of coyotes eventually, which is too bad. But we had these lovely swans, and uh, one day we were just minding our own business, doing some gardening, and in came this very fancy, shiny SUV, like a Cherokee or something, you know. Out jumped these two uniformed officers with, you know, the Stetsons, hats, whatever, uniforms, the whole thing, Wildlife Canada or something like that. And they presented my wife with a $240 fine for uh, keeping swans without a license. (laughs) It was a $10 license. Uh, And uh, so the situation was, my wife, I said, don't pay it. You should fight it, resist it, go argue with them, whatever. But she's a good citizen, and she said, no, no, I... She said, I think the woman who gave them to us told me there was a license. I just didn't bother applying. So she paid a $240 fine. But my question, besides the ridiculousness of making somebody who's keeping swans, feeding them, protecting them and all that, was these people driving in in this $55,000 SUV with brand new uniforms on They probably paid $60,000 a year each to do this kind of thing. I mean, I can hardly believe it. We, we even have temperature police in this country. We do. We have temperature police. In a building I used to own, we had a, lots of office space that was for rent, and I used to get calls from this one office in particular. There was a kind of a wall down the middle of that office, and there was a woman on one side who used to dress kind of skimpy, and the woman on the other side would dress, I would say, reasonable, you know? And I would, it was a riot. I would, my secretary and I would laugh about it because we would get these calls often on the same day. The one woman would call and say, It's too cold. It's too cold. Can you turn up the heat? And the other woman would call and say, It's too hot in this office? Can you turn down the heat? I guess they weren't relating, you know. And so eventually I just said, look, you've got to decide, is it too hot, is it too cold, this is the same office, and so on and so on. Well, the skimpy-dressed one, I guess, wasn't very nice. And one day, true story, temperature police came to my office. Some bureaucrat who worked for the Ontario Environment Ministry, or Ministry of Environment, came to my office. He has a very nice dark suit. He has a little black briefcase. He just walked in, said, Hello, I'm Mr. So-and-so from the Ministry of the Environment. He sat in the chair in front of my desk, flipped open his briefcase, and he pulled out a dry bulb thermometer. And he said, I've just been down to office 24, he said, and taken their temperature. And that office, he said, is one degree above recommended temperature. (laughs) Meaning recommended by his ministry. And so on. I mean how do you explain something like that? This government regulating the temperature in my office, you know? So, I said, Sir, I said, I'd like to ask you to leave. And as you leave, I want you to think about something. I said, that woman's lease is coming to you in a couple of months. I said, and I'm not going to renew it. And she can thank you for that. You know. Troublemaker, you know. Troublemaker. But our lives are pervaded by these kinds of presences and... um, Human rights tribunals are people who are policing speech, mostly. I think sometimes they've done some good. Maybe. I can't cite you any, but I'm told they do. Um, But they are nosy, busybodies. My friend Ezra Levant, you know his name, has had plenty of experience with that, wrote a book about it, and um, brave guy. He goes into his human rights tribunal hearing, he takes in a video camera, and the woman says, hold it, you can't film this, and he says... Show me the law that says I can't. And she couldn't. So he filmed the whole process of them interrogating him about him publishing the Danish cartoons, which he did in a, the Western Standard Journal magazine. So he filmed the whole thing. He leaves. He puts it on YouTube. There's 500,000 hits in the first 24 hours. <laughs> you know? And they got embarrassed, and he, he pushed back. See? By the way, I encourage you to push back at that kind of thing. You know, wherever it's reasonable, it, it needs to be done. So, that's that's a meandering way of getting to my notion of government and sort of what's happened here, you know. Um, What was the meaning of government to those founding fathers who were forming those founding families and contributing to the notion of public virtue through their children, raising their children properly. By the way, segue again, the word happiness was part of how they raised the children. In America, it was put right in their Declaration of Independence. You know, the pursuit of happiness. It didn't promise them happiness. It didn't say you shall have happiness as a right of a citizen. It said you have the right to pursue happiness. But what did happiness mean for those people? I submit it did not mean, it did not refer to a sensation of feeling good. It wasn't about feeling good. It was about the habit of acting rightly. The habit of behaving correctly. Uh, and the notion was that if you are a virtuous person, you will be happy. But if you're not virtuous, you probably won't be happy. And you can't get to happiness by not being a virtuous person. It didn't mean being a goody-goody to-choose, you know what I mean? It meant by, you know, living by your religious and moral beliefs and the Ten Commandments and the whole thing, which is pretty good. <laughs> but uh, it was not about feeling good is the point that I'm making. And it wasn't about feeling good until probably the last century. Even the early part of the last century, I don't think it was, because we had more of a sense of uh, public virtue. At any rate, our founders needed to put together a government based on these tenets and these forms of thought. So they did. It was called the British North America Act. I don't know a lot about it, but enough to write a little bit about it. It's in this book, especially in the first chapter which is called Canada's Regime Change. Hey, So that's a term which has been tossed around a lot in the last 10 years ever since 9-11 because the Americans and others have gotten involved in so-called regime change. Um, but I think Canada went through a regime change from the mid-1960s well until today. And that regime change was kind of crystallized and um, symbolized uh, by the advent and... Uh, of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which for most Canadians, they love it. They think it's a great document. Um, I'm not so critical of the sentiments as I I am of the document uh, because I think it uh, has institutionalized all kinds of forms of favoritism and discrimination in this country. Some people call it reverse discrimination, but discrimination is discrimination, whether it's forward or reverse. You know what I mean? It's discrimination. So Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms has institutionalized A lot of these things, and especially the equality provisions, section 15, 1 and 2, have enabled our courts to alter the nature of this country without the authority of parliament. Without the authority of parliament means without the authority of the people. Now, what does it mean to say that the laws in Canada are sometimes made by our judges and sometimes altered without the authority of the people? To me, it means we've gone back to our pre-Confederation status. Before Confederation, in fact, 20-some-odd years before that, we got what we called responsible government. Before that, all the decisions were being made by governors who were appointed, not elected, to rule us, and by judges of the Privy Council in England when, when court cases went back to England for decisions. Uh, but basically, we were not in control of our own destiny. We didn't have responsible government. We got it. And it was crystallized in the BNA Act. And my argument, one of the arguments I make in this book, which I think I've defended, is that uh, we have returned to a pre-confederation status because we now have a document which has switched the emphasis in Canada from a country ruled by parliamentary sovereignty to one which is on too many occasions, not always, of course, but on too many occasions, is ruled by judicial sovereignty. We have, and there's a whole chapter in the back called Here Comes the Judge. <laughs> that that comes after the chapter called French Fried, <laughs> which is about our language police and the bilingual regime and all that kind of thing. But the chapter on the laws is called Here Comes the Judge. How Canadians Lost Their Real Rights and Freedoms. That's what that chapter is about. And I think if it's true, which you can decide for yourselves when you read what's going on here, if it's true that uh, judges, unelected judges are changing the Moral and ethical ethos of this country without the specific authority of the people Then we have returned to a pre-confederation condition. That's because that was what was happening then I'll just give you two examples the abortion Canada has no abortion law It's the first country in the history of the world that's never had a law against abortion of any kind It got struck down by a court for the most strange reasons. The people had already said abortion is a crime the judges said, yeah, but not everybody has equal access to the crime. Therefore, we're throwing the law out. <laughs> you see? They don't all have equal access to this crime, so it's a bad law. It's kind of, they didn't say it in those words, but that was the effect of what they said. So Canada ended up, even though you cannot point me to a poll of any kind in this country, an honest poll which actually states the case, do you accept abortion on demand right up to the moment of natural birth? Do you accept that? Canadians do not accept that. They have never accepted that. Lots of them will say, okay, in the first trimester, okay for certain cases, or certain percentage will say, no way at all, and so on. But we don't have any polls in this country which indicate that the Canadian population has ever accepted abortion on demand, which is the regime we've been living under since 19... Was it 88? 89? The Morgenthaler ruling? 88. So I say the people did not make that decision. The courts made it. Now, we had a right as a people to come back and make a new law, but we've never had the guts to do that because we figure our judges would just shove it, shove it back at us. You see? That's just one example of making law from above. It's almost like we've arrived at Plato's totalitarian state, which was not an egalitarian state, by the way, but it was one ruled by philosopher kings and queens that he argued for. Why did he argue for it? Well, he argued for it because he said... Look, the law of degeneration is always at work. Societies, civilizations rise, they level out for a while, and they fall. Maybe we can put together a society where that will not be the case. So he basically said to himself, we can devise a form of code law, and we can plop it on top of the people, and we can have philosopher kings and queens interpreting the code for all the people so Everyone gets their lives run the same way, you know and um, we'll have a perfect society which will rise and stay there, and it won't go down. One of the institutions he pointed his finger at, which he said was responsible for society's declining, was the private family. Why did he do that? He said, because some families are rich, some are poor. It's terrible. He said. Some are smart, some are stupid. Some are hardworking, some are lazy, etc., etc., etc. Some are moral, some are immoral. It's all over the place, he said. So we've got to regulate that. So we'll take the kids away from their families when they're very young and we'll raise them by the state. That's what Plato argued for. Well, the last person who argued that, out loud as a prime minister in this country, was Brian Mulroney, a conservative prime minister. I got so angry when I heard him do that, I wrote him a letter because he sent me a fundraising letter. So I wrote back. And I said, you're too pink. I said, if you don't get more blue you're not going to see any more of my green. You know? <laughs> that's what I did. Now, somebody in his office must have seen that because that ended up in the Globe and Mail. You know? And um, a lot of things came out of that Globe and Mail piece, but that's where that little, that's where that little statement meant. But, um, yeah, Maroney was the last guy to argue that. And I'll just bring you back to a personal note because when I ended up in my publisher's office in the way that I told you... Um, he asked me, he said, well, we're liberals, but we, we should publish books like this, but we don't know you. We don't know what you're like, like your character. Can you tell us something about yourself? I said, like what? Well, Maroni was just doing this thing, you know, and he said, well, it's going to be $4 billion a year. It could have been 10 Nobody had any idea. And he said, well, like national daycare. What do you think of that? I said, well, let's just say you'd have to drag me uh, stark naked across this country be- behind a team of wild horses to get me to a- agree that a government daycare is better than a loving mother and father in, the, in their home. Well, he says, I guess that tells us <laughs> <laughs> what you're like. And that's when he said, we'll do the book, you know. But um, I've just given you some indication here of the because we haven't got time to go into all that, but the historical roots of the anti-family movement in the Western world started in a major way with Plato, especially in his republic, where he did advocate uh, taking the children away from the families, raising them in government daycare, getting rid of the ones that weren't too healthy, you know, push them over the cliff, and all that. So modern abortion, uh, same thing. And then um, uh, letting the mother, and he said the children should not know their mothers or their fathers. They should be raised by the state. Uh, The Israeli kibbutzim are a bit of an indication of the same kind of thinking, still here in modern times. So... You know, I've always said when people ask me, because it is true, as you saw in your flyer, that the first thing that got me going on the war against the family was when I saw the Phil Donahue show. And somebody on his show said that uh, when he asked him what the definition of the family uh, was, somebody said, any four people seen together on Donahue. You know? So right away I thought, boy, there's something wrong here, and this is crazy, because my definition was a married mother and father living together with their dependent children. Simple, clean, clear, and so on, you know. But uh, the war started back then and it continued through uh, Western uh, civilization, right up through Rousseau. Uh, the French Revolution it uh, wasn't under the Rousseau because he was dead by then, but his social contract was the Bible of Robespierre. In fact, he went to the guillotine with that thing clutched to his chest because the revolution ate him up and took off his head even the revolu- of, of the first revolutionaries. But they were very anti-family. Uh, the family was what they called, uh, well, an intermediate uh, institution. And intermediate institutions had their own rules, their own laws, their own ways of raising children, which had nothing to do with what the state wants, and so we got to get rid of them. Or, okay, parents still got to breed for us, and kids got to be fed and clothed and put to bed at night but that 's about it <laughs> we 're not allowing any more family influence if we can help it. That was all through, all through, shot through the French Revolution uh, revolutionary documents and then you come up the course to modern radicals who are basically saying the same thing. If you look at uh, well, I think modern feminism in particular, uh, I say that uh, uh, and one of the things I ask in this book is, how did femi- feminism get co-opted by radicals. Like, it started out as kind of a pro-woman movement. Almost right away, it got co-opted by radicals in this country. You'll see some shocking quotes on it in this chapter on feminism here. Like, where they're basically saying that, that, um, you know, we'll never have equality until we see the end of marriage and the end of the the natural family. You know, that kind of thing. And where their whole animus was to destroy it. So I say that, and I'm going to end this way by saying that there are basically five radicalisms uh, which we have to be aware of, which all affect the family one way or the other, especially as a family as our founders wanted it to be. And which it it is, of course, for most of us, but not for everybody and not officially. All these radicalisms seek to order, uh, seek to overthrow some kind of order or other. Radical feminist movement seeks to overthrow the biological order the order of the natural family, father, mother, uh, heterosexual, uh, biology, uh, the hierarchy of authority in the family. And it does that, first of all, by trying to negate uh, all gender differences. It argues, for example, that gender is constructed, not natural. It's a joke. It has to be a joke. But I mean, that's the way the arguments go, especially in postmodern thought. And um, it argues for getting rid of the Uh, consequences of gender. Uh, There's several ways you do that. You do that with pay equity regulation, which uh, tries to make the pay of all women the same as the pay of all men in the same types of job. Uh, Not giving any credence to the fact that most of the differences, almost all the differences in pay levels between women and men in our society have to do with marriage and the choices people make because they decide to get married. Most women who decide to get married quit full-time jobs or change full-time jobs or refuse promotions or ask for more time off to raise their kids, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And most men, who probably refused a promotion because they were just having a good time, Susie tells them he's pregnant, that she's pregnant, and all of a sudden he goes, whoa. And he runs to the boss and says, that job, that job you talked about last week that I said I wasn't sure about, I take it. I'll take it, you know, because he knows. More money, you know, kids coming, like the whole thing. So you get this separation in pay levels between males and females, as long as they've had marriage in their lives. But the fact of the matter is, in Canada, is that never married men and never married women have always made exactly the same wages in Canada at whatever age level you're talking about. It's marriage that makes the difference. At any rate, they wanted to get rid of the effect of marriage, so they argued for pay equity, married or not, would force people to pay. They'd, by the way, the pay police came to mind to my company. I did that too. I had all these police <laughs> visiting me and they came and they said, your kitchen, uh, you know, the woman in your kitchen, we loved her. Her name was Maureen. She's been there for like 20 years and she loved all the customers and it was great, you know, and he says, um, we've looked at the pay scales in this company and you, know, you should be paying her what you're paying your maintenance man. And I said, look, the maintenance man, he gets up at 5 in the morning, it's 35 below, he goes on the roof, there's a gas leak, whatever, I mean, I don't think she wants to do that. So she didn't apply for the maintenance job, sir, you know, and so on. And he doesn't like cooking, so he doesn't apply for the kitchen job. I said, when we advertised the job in the kitchen, 100 people lined up. Most of them were women, not all of them. When we advertised for the maintenance job, at her rate, nobody lined up, nobody came. So we had to raise the the pay. Still nobody came. Finally, when we raised it enough, we got four or five mechanical, people with mechanical licenses lining up for the job. You know? Well, we've, we've assessed the job, and we think that her job is the same as his job, and here's the score. They used the hay scale, the whole thing, and we rated it. And here's, here's our... We, we order you to pay... I said, to pay her what you're paying him. And I said, well, if you order me to do that, I said the price of those hamburgers will go to $12. Well, today, that's not a Unusual, but <laughs> 20 years ago, a hamburger was $3 if you're getting a really big one. And I said, you're going to, I have to raise the price of hamburgers to $12. I said, nobody will buy a $12 hamburger in, the, in our restaurant, and so we'll have to close it down. So she won't have a job. Is that what you want? And this is the way the discussion went, you know what I mean? Anyway, in that chapter, I say that the radical feminists and their attack on the family, and maybe I'll just close there, uh, is orchestrated through these three main programs. The pay equity program, which is meant to remove the differences between men and women in the, in the free market for all kinds of perverse reasons, as I have explained. And then there's the uh, abortion uh, movement, which is meant to um, uh, permit women to have only children they want and not children they don't want so that it's okay to quit your job and take, or, or take less pay or whatever if you want your child. But if you're forced to have the child because it's just nature at work, well, that's not a very good thing, that's not very feminist, and so we must have abortion on demand. That was the second program, and that was meant to remove the biological consequences of human fertility. Okay? The third program was national daycare. And the idea there was, if we can have a national daycare program, and, and when they brought it in, and they'll try it again, they're always trying it, they were talking about any woman. It didn't matter if you were a Rosedale mom with a mink stole and a tennis racket on the way to the club, you could drop your kid off for X dollars a day at government daycare. That's a very different situation from someone who's truly needy and has to have some kind of daycare, you know, to make ends meet. But the feminist program was, no, it should be for all women, it should all be tax funded. So all three of those programs were aimed at removing male-female differences, both biologically and uh, in society and reproductively. And they were all a tax on the family uh, as our founders Uh, hoped it would be. So I'm wrapping up now, (laughs) and I want to thank you for uh, having me, and also to say that if you want to change this kind of thing, you have to get informed. You really have to get informed. You have to have your arguments well sorted out. Um, Sometimes when I give speeches like this, someone will stand up and say, Mr. Gardner, I'm outraged by what you're saying. Usually a radical feminist. And I say, I say, you couldn't be more outraged than I am. So, what's your your point? You know, like, what's, what's the argument you're trying to make? As opposed to, why are you attacking me personally, you know? And then I say, you know, I don't believe you're a bad person. I don't believe people on the left are bad people at all. I think they're very idealistic. I think they're good people with bad ideas. There's a difference between a bad person and a good person with a bad idea. So I say, if you want to swing them to your point of view and you're persuaded it's the best point of view, you have to give them a better idea. A higher idea usually because what they're looking for is a noble standard by which to uh, guide their own conduct. You have to give them a better idea. Where do you get your better ideas? Excuse the immodesty, but in books like this, in books like The War Against the Family and there's many other books, there's all kinds of great authors around and people who can help you figure out uh, what the ideas are that you need to give the people who are presently poised against the uh, health and vigor of your society and against uh, the family. So, so the issue is, you know, are you going to sit down for more taxes, more government, more transfers of family functions from families to government and all that kind of stuff, or stand up for strong values, responsibilities, clear principles, uh, the family as the heart of society, and so on. It was Burke, as you know, you've all heard it, was a great line again when he said that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil was that good people do nothing. He didn't say good people had to do bad things. He just said all they have to do is nothing, and the forces of evil will will push their way across the table until all the good folks fall on the floor, you know, and then there's only the bad guys on the table. So that's my speech, and thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.